welcome to the IOD's Director's Briefing Podcast. This podcast is produced by the IOD's Policy Unit and provides timely updates, insights and commentary on the key issues of the day impacting business leaders. this podcast, which is intended to brief you on a number of corporate governance reforms which are being proposed by the government and the Financial Conduct Authority, UK's regulator of financial markets. We also wish to highlight a new initiative that was launched by the IOD last week to establish a code of conduct for directors. To talk about these developments, I'm joined by Roger Barker, the IOD's Director of Policy and Corporate Governance, and Chris Hodge, Senior Advisor to the IOD's Centre for Corporate Governance. Roger, could I start by asking you about the background to the government and FCA reforms and to outline what is actually being addressed by them? Yes. Um, hello, Alex. Um, yeah, we, we are certainly experiencing quite a deluge of corporate governance reform at the moment. Um, but I have to say that these two areas of reform are com- coming from somewhat different directions. Um, The Bayes reforms of audit and corporate governance are really about responding to some previous high-profile corporate collapses that that had a very significant effect at the time on the economy. I mean, you may remember the collapse of Thomas Cook, uh, where about 9,000 people lost their jobs and many hundreds of stores were closed. The collapse of BHS um, and also, of course, the very high-profile collapse of Carillion, um, which affected thousands of suppliers and contractors, um, as well as many thousands of employees. Now, in the light of these collapses, the government uh, became very aware that corporate reporting and audit wasn't really doing what it was intended to do. And these are important aspects of a corporate governance system. Reporting and audit really is crucial to supporting confidence in business and encouraging investment and growth. And so as a result of that, uh, the government commissioned a number of reports, uh, three major reports, one by Sir John Kingman on the future of the audit regulator, the Financial Reporting Council, another by Sir Donald Bryden, which looked at audit in a more holistic um, sense, um, and a third report by the Competition and Markets Authority to really to look at how good a job auditors were doing in a market which was very concentrated and dominated by the big four audit for, for firms. So that really was the, the motivation for the Bayes reforms. The Financial Conduct Authority reforms, on the other hand, are very much more about rebuilding London's position as a global stock market, and in particular an equity market where high growth and technology companies of the future would want to list. Now, it's no secret that London's share of the global IPO market has declined quite steeply in recent years. It was only about 5% of global IPOs in the period 2015 to 2020. And overall, there's been about a 40% decline in the number of listed companies on the market since 2008. And there's there's very much a perception that London is facing very stiff competition as as an IPO market from the US and Asian equity markets. And there's also a view that too few innovative and 
technologically oriented companies are choosing to come to the London market. And And in the eyes of some, that may be due to excessive complexity, excessive cost in the listing uh, process. And so I think it's these considerations which are being played out in the government's reforms um, to the listing r- rules, which, which are occurring through through the FCA. Um, and we'll perhaps come on to the detail of those in due course. Brilliant. Thank you. Perhaps we could look in a bit more detail at the audit and corporate governance reforms which are being proposed by Bayes. Roger, could you outline some of its key features? Yes. Well, probably first and foremost, Um, The Financial Reporting Council is intended to be replaced by a new, stronger regulator, the Audit Reporting and Governance Authority, or ARGA for short, which will have tougher enforcement powers and will be funded by a levy on business. Now, for the first time, the largest private companies, so not just those listed on the stock exchange, come under the scope of this new regulator. And that really reflects the impact that they have on the economy and the impact that the collapse of companies like BHS, which wasn't a stock market listed company, had on the economy when it collapsed. I should stress that these reforms don't really relate to smaller business. Um, the focus is very much on the, the UK's largest companies. And and this was a discussion during the, the debate on these proposals. Where should the line be drawn? And what the government has decided is that unlisted companies with more than 750 employees and with over £750 million in annual turnover, will come under the scope of these regulations and the scope of ARGA, the new regulator. Within this new regime, the directors of these large companies who don't fulfil their legal duties in respect of corporate reporting and audit, um, who, for example, aren't entirely open and honest with auditors or who provide misleading or incorrect statements about the state of their company's finances, will potentially uh, face direct sanctions from the regulator. Um, And another potential change that the government wants to make is to address so-called rewards for failure of company uh, directors. And it intends to update and change the UK corporate governance uh, code in respect of being able to for companies to claw back bonus payments or, or malice uh, payments in the future. Now, it's the case that these proposals will require large businesses to be more transparent about their profits and losses and therefore the basis on which they pay out dividends. You know, what we've we saw in a number of these these previous collapses was that large dividends were being paid out and then companies went bust a relatively short period after that. So the government wants much more transparency about um, so-called uh, distributable reserves, which which are the reserves which potentially can be paid out in the form of dividends. The government also wants um, companies to be more transparent about the measures they've taken to prevent fraud uh, and also um, the measures that they've taken in terms of checking the effectiveness of their internal uh, risk control framework. Um, And then the final 
thing that I would highlight, Alex, in terms of the reforms is the government is trying to address the current dominance of the big four audit firms, that the concentration in the audit market, which has, has been seen in their eyes, at least, as being a, a cause of some of, of the recent problems. Now, it will be the case going forward that FTSE 350 companies will be required to conduct part of their audit with a challenger firm. So not just one of the big four, a challenger firm will have to be included um, in the audit. And the new regulator, Arga, will have powers to really to oversee the big audit firms and in particular to make sure that they keep their audit and non-audit functions operationally separate. And there is actually the power for ministers to enforce a market cap on um, audit firms if their uh, share doesn't reduce, their market share doesn't reduce, and if we don't see reduced uh, concentration in the market. Great. Thank you for that overview, Roger. Chris, what's your assessment of the proposals? Are there some aspects of them that are proving more controversial than others? Um, I, I think inevitably there will be, Alex. It, it's difficult to give an assessment of, of all of them. Well, Roger has uh, touched on some of the things there, but there's, there's, there's a, a number of other uh, proposals in a nearly 200-page long document that, that, that even Roger has not, not yet covered. Um, so I think the, um, the three I would perhaps touch on, the first is that Roger's already alluded to, the first is the, the, the general overhauling of the FRC's powers. Uh, I, I need to declare an interest here. I used to work for the for the FRC, so I maybe have a slightly different take on this to, to, to some businesses. But I think some of them are essentially what I would consider sensible measures to address loopholes or weaknesses in the previous uh, set of powers that the FRC had. Uh, Roger talked about a, a levy on businesses and, and, and auditors. The levy on businesses actually already comes through the FCA. So except for those large unlisted companies that are now within the scope, there shouldn't be a, a direct impact on companies there. But those large private companies will be paying a, a, a levy for the first time. The weakness in the FRC's previous arrangements was that it, wasn't, it didn't have the power to uh, require the audit profession to pay a levy. It had to negotiate with them every year on how much the audit profession would contribute, which when you're attempting to regulate them, is not a particularly comfortable arrangement. You know, you have to go and ask people for how much, how much will you let us uh, regulate you? Uh, so I think that's a, that's a good thing. Roger mentioned the powers to take action against directors. Again, the FRC currently has powers to take action against company directors for these issues around audit and financial reporting, but only if they are a member of the an auditing or accounting professional body. This is a hangover from the day when it went from self-regulation to independent regulation. And I think personally that closing that gap and saying your, your guilt or otherwise should not be dependent on your professional qualifications, but on your actions, again, is, is relatively sensible. Uh, I think the, there were in the original set of proposals some powers or proposed powers that I personally felt were slightly overreaching what was appropriate for a, a regulator. And one in particular that was proposed was that the FRC should have the right to uh, send an independent observer to sit in on audit committee meetings to check they were doing the job properly, essentially. 
uh, and I think a lot of people had reservations about whether that was was appropriate. Uh, and it's pleased to see that the government has said that they don't intend to proceed with that particular proposal. So I think that's that's a good thing. In terms of uh, internal controls, I think it's worth taking that one together with something that I, I don't think Roger mentioned, which was a proposal for there to be what's called a, a resilience statement, looking at the not only looking at the uh, current financial position of the company, but looking ahead and trying to assess whether the company will continue to be viable over the next few, over the foreseeable future. Both of that and the internal control statements are currently part of the UK Corporate Governance Code, which operates on a complier explained basis. And interestingly, the government has decided to keep the internal control statements uh, in the code, but strengthen it, uh, which is an entirely you know, rational approach to take. But, but to my my slight surprise, they have decided they want to put this resilient statement into into law. So that will now be um, something that is required of all companies that come under the the definition that Roger uh, described. Uh, I think the the issue here is is partly how useful is this information. If you're being asking companies to look three to five years ahead, inevitably there are a lot of qualifying statements that have to be made because no one can possibly predict with any confidence what what will happen there. So whether the, the value of the information to, to investors in the market really justifies it being uh, a regulatory requirement. They, they have, however, in, in the document, made it a lot less prescriptive, it, it appears, than the original proposal. In the original proposal, they were even once saying we will specify in law what particular risks you have to, to report on, for example, and the time period over which you you need to make that assessment. It seems like it's that's not going to be quite as, as prescriptive, but we need to wait and see the details. The important thing is, though, that they have confirmed that this will be covered by the so-called safe harbour provision in the Companies Act, which gives directors a protection against liability if statements they make looking forward turn out not to, to happen you know, in, in due course. So you can't be Eventually, you can't be sued for uh, predicting in, in good faith an outcome that doesn't materialize. And I think that was the key to putting anything at all in. Without that, it would have been, I think, very potentially very dangerous. Uh, I'll finish with the reference to the shared audits that, that Roger again alluded to. I think this is one of those topics where you've got a sort of market level impact and then you've got the impact on individual companies. And Although I'm not myself entirely persuaded by the arguments, the government believes that uh, by undertaking shared audits will build capa the capacity and capabilities of the so-called tier two audit firms outside the big four, and that in the longer term, that will lead to greater competition in terms of both quality and price in the audit market. And you know that's an outcome that I think everybody, including all companies, would like to see. Uh, there's a question as to whether that achieves it. But I think in the meantime, if you're looking at it from a company point of view, it's it's a very different perspective because you're, what you're being asked to do is take you know, two auditors to divide the work between you. There must be concerns that that's going to impact on the level of overall fees that you end up paying. And I'd have thought there must be concerns about overall quality as well. You know, arguably, one of the reasons that some of the smaller audit firms don't get more work is, is the perhaps the quality or their resources are not up to the same level as some of the others. So I think it's um, 
I can sort of understand the the market level arguments that the government and the CMA have put forward, but I think the the impact on individual audits and, and individual companies is much less much less clear cut. Great, thank you, Roger. Would you agree with that assessment from an IOD perspective? Do you think that the overall burden of responsibility and personal liability on directors will be increased by the new regime? Well. The government argues in its uh, response to the, the consultation on, on, on these reforms that they're not increasing uh, the, the duties on directors and they are not asking directors to do anything that might not be reasonably expected by someone in, in a, such a role. Um, and they also point to the fact that directors' duties around corporate reporting haven't been enforced very much in the past and that this is merely really increasing enforcement rather than raising the bar in terms of duties. But I have to say um, my perspective is this ultimately will increase directors' perception of their liability. Um, they simply because they will now have this tough new regulator, Arga, that is going to be scrutinising all aspects of corporate reporting, who can actually look at everything which is in the annual report, not just the financial accounts, but also non-financial reporting, corporate governance reporting and, and everything else, um, and can direct changes to company accounts, can commission expert reviews, um, and can impose sanctions directly um, on directors. So I think the mere fact of that much more stringent enforcement is, is a de facto increase in, in liability for directors. Um, and it's certainly the case that directors are now, as Chris mentioned, are now being asked to make a larger number of statutory uh, declarations. And Chris mentioned the resilience statement, um, and that will involve directors publishing things like reverse stress testing um, and they're going to have to uh, uh, make statements in respect to fraud prevention, distributable reserves and audit uh, and assurance. And my feeling is that many directors as a result of that will almost certainly feel that they need to spend more and spend more time on compliance related um, activities and may also feel that they need to commission more external insurance and assurance in respect of these type of activities. So I do think that the, the overall uh, directors will see their job as being more challenging now. Now, some might say, well, that's that goes with the job that directors, if directors don't want to accept this level of responsibility, then, then they shouldn't be in the job in the first place. But of course, as with any regulatory regime, it, it, there's a balance to be found uh, between um, demanding appropriate accountability um, without actually making something an impossibly risky task for an individual director. So we'll have to see if that balance is, is actually found. Thank you, Roger. I'd now like to turn to the FCA's proposed reforms of the UK listing rules. Chris, the FCA changed the listing rules last year. So why are they considering further changes so soon? Uh, that's, a, that's a good question, Alex. I think the um, the changes that were made last year and then the, the, the main ones, the ones that caused attention, were allowing to a certain extent dual class shares and reducing the free float requirements. They came out of uh, a review conducted by Lord Hill into the, the, the listing regime. Uh, but they 
didn't address all of the recommendations in his report. So this consultation picks up some of the other issues that he rec made recommendations about. And apparently there were some further issues that were raised when FCA consulted on the changes they've already made that are now being added into the mix. Uh, I think it's worth noting that, that the FCA hasn't committed to making any further changes. This, this consultation has a slightly different tone to the consultation on last year's changes, where it was very much, we're going to do this, the consultation on is, is on how, not whether. Uh, this seems to be a bit more open. The consultation runs until the end of July, and, and it's something I would encourage people to, to look at and, and get their views in. Thanks, Chris. Do you think that there's a risk that abolishing premium listings and having just a single segment will reduce governance standards? Oh, I'd better take us back a step and explain what, why you're asking that question, I think, hadn't I? Um, apologies, I hadn't, I hadn't laid out the main proposals in the, in the FCA consultation there. Um, what, what you're alluding to, Alex, is a, a suggestion that whereas at the moment we have two equity-listed segments on the main market, and by main market, I mean that, that is regulated by the FCA, it doesn't include things like AIM, uh, there are two segments, one is called premium and one is called standard. Uh, the rules for the so-called standard listing are based on EU minimum requirements. The premium listing sets higher standards, uh, and those additional standards are set by the, the FCA, uh, and that includes some standards around governance. Uh, the premium companies are, you know, the FTSE 100, the 250, and, and so on. And, and importantly, I think, uh, in terms of the market operates, they're also the ones that appear on all the indices that investors use. Uh, so the FCA is seeking views on whether to scrap those two separate headings, segments, and have a single segment for all equity listings. Uh, and the rationale seems to be that as we no longer need to base that, those requirements on EU requirements, we should at least look at to see whether a different approach would be beneficial. Uh, to answer your, your question, uh, with, will this have an impact on governance standards? Um, in principle, it could do. Uh, and I think that would be a concern because Personally, I, uh, I know Roger alluded to the debate about the need to attract uh, internationally mobile IPOs and, and companies, um, and, and inevitably the government standards and uh, the rigorous uh, nature of the relatively rigorous nature of some of the listing rules gets raised. I mean, my own view is that the high governance standards have been a strength of the London market, not a not a competitive weakness to date, and I think what sometimes overlooked in policy discussions is it's not just the companies that we need to be able to attract to London. We need to attract the internationally mobile capital as well. Uh, and big institutional investors have a lot of money to allocate. They don't have to allocate it to us. Uh, and certainly when they are taking high level decisions on asset allocations, you know, how much to spend in each market, they always look at the extent to which they can rely on local law, standards, disclosures, etc., to protect their interests when they're making that assessment. And I think we shouldn't assume that the international money will always be there. Um, so there is a potential there. But in terms of whether the that potential actually uh, is realized, it very much depends on the way in which FCA would, would construct any single segment. And my take on what they appear to be proposing is that it actually would keep the current arrangements pretty much intact except for a change of, of name uh, and of course this may not be what they ultimately propose so we, we can't be sure of that but but the basic idea that they're putting forward is to have a single segment with 
mandatory requirements, which are essentially the, you know, the, the main listing rules, but then to have what they are calling supplementary obligations, which companies could choose to follow. Uh, if they chose to follow that, they would have to sign up to all of the supplementary obligations. They couldn't just cherry pick the ones they they looked like. And essentially, if you put it together, what they're suggesting is a combination of mandatory and supplementary uh, obligations looks pretty much like what you have to do for a current premium listing. Uh, so the, the, the core of that, if that's the approach they take, is what's going to be mandatory and what's going to be supplementary. Uh, and while that's not settled, they do have in the discussion paper a table which shows how they're provisionally minded to, to split the two. And to be honest, pretty much everything is mandatory. Uh, and that includes a requirement to comply or explain with the UK Corporate Governance Code, which currently isn't a requirement for the standard listed companies. They have to make a corporate governance statement, but they don't have to comply or explain with the code. So arguably, what's being put forward is is not a weakening of the requirements for premium listed companies, but a strengthening of the requirements for, for standard listed companies. Um, other things like climate-related financial disclosures, which are currently only required of premium listed companies, would also become become mandatory. In, in addition, they, they're suggesting a number of safeguards uh, against current premium listed companies deciding to, to be sort of mandatory obligations only, which I think would be another concern as part of the transition. Uh, for example, they're, they're suggesting that shareholders should be given a vote on whether to adopt the supplementary measures or obligations or not. And you would imagine that for current premium listed companies, in most cases, they will vote in favour, except perhaps for some controlled companies. Uh, and interestingly, the FCA also spell out that they are not going to tell the the, the index, uh, indices, uh, apologies, my stripping over my teeth here. Uh, they're not going to tell the people who prepare the, the FTSE indices and so on that they are obliged to put companies that are only following the mandatory obligations onto the index, which would be the equivalent to opening the index to, to standard listed companies, which, which they don't do at the moment. So if the index providers said you can only get on our index if you opt in to the supplementary obligations, then that's a, a big disincentive for premium listed companies to, to change any of the, the standards they sign up to. So I think, uh, you know, with a lot of caveats, if it's implemented as they seem to be proposing, then I'm not sure it does any great harm. Uh, whether there's any real benefit or value from it is perhaps a, a, you know, a, different, a different matter. But. Great, thank you. And do you think that reducing the financial eligibility criteria will make it easier for innovative high-growth companies to list? Yeah, again, I'll, I'll take a step back and just explain what that, that proposal is. Uh, the, at the moment, in order to be eligible to, to list, there are certain financial tests that companies have to meet. Uh, one of them is that they need to have a track record of three years positive revenue earnings. Uh, another is that there has to be a statement that they have currently have enough working capital to, to meet their current requirements. And the FCA is seeking views on whether to remove those criteria so that you wouldn't need to pass those tests in order to be eligible, but to replace it with a disclosure requirement in which essentially information about whether you meet those tests would be part of what was included in your prospectus and investors could make their own mind up about whether they were happy to take the, the risk of investing in you if you didn't meet uh, what were previously the tests. And it is argued, as, as, as Roger said earlier, that this 
may help to make it easier for high growth innovative companies um, who have yet to establish a, a track record to to list I mean, that's, this is an issue that interests us very much at the IAD Centre for Corporate Governance because we have very recently launched a, a call for evidence to look at the impact of governance on innovation. And one of the questions we ask there is, are there any rules that actually have the the impact on or the effect of constraining innovation? So we'll, it'll be very interesting to see what the FCA does in this area. Uh, in terms of the impact, again, rather like the change to the segments, I'm, I'm not sure how significant an impact one way or other there would be. You know, on the one hand, anything that removes a barrier to growth for innovative companies in principle has to be welcomed. And the alternative suggestion of saying full disclosure and greater transparency rather than barring companies you know, uh, at the start point seems to be a, a reasonable approach. On the other hand, um, this has been tried before. The, the FCA set up a, what's called a high growth segment, uh, I think in 2013, which was specifically designed to try and attract exactly the sort of companies they're trying to attract now. And the, the listing rules for that segment are much lighter than those that apply to the main market. And that includes many of these, these financial tests do not apply on that segment. So, you know, We've got some evidence of, 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 of the effect this has. Uh, and the reality is that there is only one company currently listed on that segment, and there's never been more than three. Um, so there may be other reasons for that. But what it suggests to me is that while the listing rules uh, and the financial tests may make a difference, uh, they may be one consideration in the decision on whether to list or not. It doesn't seem that they're the main reason. Uh, uh, and if that's the case, then... While I can't see an objection to the change that, that there is being proposed here, as I say, to go from eligibility tests to full disclosure, equally, I'm, it's not obvious that changing those tests is necessarily going to lead to a flood of new IPOs. Great. Thanks for that, Chris. I'd now like to turn to the IOD's Code of Conduct for Directors initiative. Roger, could you summarise what the IOD is proposing? Yes, certainly. Um I must say, it's always been rather surprising to me, at least, that company directors as a group don't have any code of conduct which guides their behavior. Um, codes of conduct are very common in other professions, accounting, medicine, law, and so on, where they're seen as an essential feature of the professional framework and, and, of, and of accountability. Um, I think the view of our members is that directors are just as important for the economy and society as other professional groups. Um, you know, we we really do take some of the leading um, leadership roles in organisations, and that therefore, not having a co code of conduct is a is a missing element in our current business framework. Now, I think the IOD is of the view that. Now is a great opportunity, especially as we are really rethinking the, the, the corporate governance framework, to create a code of conduct which is modern, which reflects um, the expectations of wider society vis-a-vis -vis the business community and, and helps address some of the problems which these other reforms that we've been discussing today have been trying trying to address. So it could cover um, desired 
behaviors with respect to climate change, diversity, business purpose, as well as, I suppose, more traditional professional expectations around things like professional competence, obeying the law, independence and confidentiality. Now, what the IED is proposing here is that we have a, co a code of conduct which is voluntary, um, which board members from all kinds of UK entity would be encouraged to sign up to and they would be encouraged by governments and other key stakeholders like institutional investors. Um, and by committing themselves to the, to the code, directors would be signalling their willingness to um, apply high ethical and behavioural standards, and they'd also be agreeing to submit themselves to any accountability processes that would be associated with the code. Now, a key part of our proposal is that this, this code of conduct for directors would be supported by government, but it wouldn't be operated by government. It would be operated by the business community itself, not by a regulator um, or government department. Um, and this, I think, would enable business itself to take the lead in addressing many of the, the concerns which stakeholders and wider society have expressed about business behaviour in, in recent years. Now, turning to the views of our members, we've polled our members on this issue, and the idea of a code of conduct is very strongly supported by them. Um, in, in May 2022, 78% um, of respondents to our Policy Voice survey found agreed that directors should be subject to a code of conduct, either on a mandatory basis or on a voluntary basis. But what we're, we're putting forward this week is the idea of a voluntary code. Um, we think this would be a proportionate way to define standards for directors, but we don't want to add to the overall burden of business regulation. So we think that a voluntary code would be a very good way of, of getting the ball rolling. I mean, our initial thinking at the moment is that all of the people who sign up to the code could appear on a publicly viewable register. Um, signatories could also disclose their, their commitment to the code in their annual reports through some kind of um, kite mark. And there could be some kind of whistleblowing process, uh, notification process, which would allow the reporting of poor conduct. And would, of course, there would need to be an, uh, an appropriate um, investigations and sanctions process um, associated with this, but that is, has yet to be defined. And what are the next steps that you think the government should take in order to establish a code of conduct for directors? Well, in launching this initiative, we have written to the Secretary of State for Business, Kwasi Kwarteng, and propose that the government commission a high-level working group to articulate um, a code of conduct for directors. Um, we think it's very important that we don't just unilaterally uh, define what a code of conduct should look like, but actually there should be input from uh, many people in the business community, both those already associated with the IOD and those outside, and also other, other stakeholder groups. Because we, what we want to do is to get to a code of conduct which is credible and enjoys the support, really a consensus of, of support from the business community as a whole, and is advocated by government and investors and others to business. Now, 
the IOD, I think, is very well placed to coordinate the, this process, um, and that, that's what we've suggested to the Secretary of State, but very much involving a wider group of stakeholders so that everyone can have they, their say. Um, I really, I hope that the, 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 the government will um, be sympathetic to this proposal. It's absolutely a, a way in which I think governance can be taken forward in a non-regulatory way. Um, it's it's not a silver bullet. No code of conduct ever is. Um, but I think ultimately it can play a role in improving trust in business and also in, in, in improving the professionalism of the director community as a whole. Roger and Chris, thank you so much for these insights into current developments in the world of corporate governance. We will continue to watch this space with great interest. Thank you, Alex. Thanks, Alex. hope that you have enjoyed this director's briefing podcast please do subscribe to our channel to ensure that you are kept up to date on our future podcasts you can find more information about our work on our website at iod.com forward slash news and on our linkedin and twitter profiles you can also contact us directly via policy unit at iod.com thank you